All right. Thank you so much for sharing that, you guys. That made me a little bit emotional myself, to be honest with you. All right. I'm just going to open in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much that we get to meet. Thank you for the testimony uh, of Lisa and Mark and how you have, you just keep showing us how you ordain things, how your sovereign hand, even despite ourselves, you use us um, and you have created a, a tapestry of our lives together here. And throughout, Father, I just can't wait to see what that looks like. We thank you. I ask, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would just speak through me today to give the words. um, Or that your presence would be felt, that your anointing would be here. In Jesus' name, amen. So praise Jesus, he rose from the grave. Yes. Happy Resurrection Day. So last week, I was so very blessed to share with everybody here in our Passover Seder. It was so loud and busy and big, and it was just such a blessing. Um, And I hope for those that had never experienced one that uh, you found a deeper understanding and uh, to what Jesus was doing in those final moments before he was crucified. And I pray that it gives you um, a solid understanding of what it is that when we're doing when we're taking communion together, that that's what he was doing, that's what he was sharing. We just do a small portion of it every Sunday, but that's what that was about. And to have appreciation for the impossible, supernatural timing and details and how he fulfilled each of those prophecies, the law of God, and how Jesus became our Passover lamb, passing over death, the penalty that we have. Um, he's, it's passed over us as well. So... Um, Just a a quick review. The Passover feast was connected to other feasts. It wasn't just a standalone thing um, that were commanded by God. And so we've been, a lot of our time has been spent in Leviticus 23. And that's where I'm going to spend some time today. Um, Leviticus 23, I'll just uh, say this real quick and then I'll skip down. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, These are my feasts. So the spring feast overlapped one another, and because how they're commanded, sometimes the days fall on different things, and there's just like an overlapping of of things on different years. Um, But they are, these three spring feasts are about his burial, um, or his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And as Christians, we have one day that we recognize as that, and we it's been named Easter. We know it by that name. I prefer the name Resurrection Day, as the early church had no name of Easter. That wasn't something that was called back then. Um, what they did celebrate, however, was Jesus' resurrection. And through the spring feast, the three feasts, they did celebrate those things that he had fulfilled. The Passover, the unleavened bread, and the first fruits. So what do we know from a believer's standpoint when it comes to these feasts? As the spirit of truth continues to pour out among God's people, many Christians have come in the last two decades into an understanding once again to celebrate, or at least to understand the Passover. And so praise God, you know, his his people are waking up, they're seeing these things once again, the value of these things. Um, And many Christians all over the world are once again celebrating these feasts, as the early church did. There's much work to do still, and we have time in this time to learn those things. As we learned last week, Jesus became the Passover lamb, down to every single detail. He was inspected, 
and he was found faultless. Remember, as they said, I, find, I wash my hands, I find no fault in this man. The Passover lamb needed to be declared faultless, without blemish as well. He was crucified on Passover. The Lord's appointed times for this exactly aligned with Jesus being crucified as the Passover lambs were being taken to be sacrificed by the priests. He timed in that year that, that Jesus was to be crucified, it would also be a Sabbath as he was pulled down from the cross before. They didn't have to break his legs. There were so many uh, prophecies that he was fulfilling in all of those things, and none of those were happenstance. And then that's followed by the uh, Passover was followed by unleavened bread and, and first fruits. So if you recall from Scripture, the first, first fruits were commanded to be waved the day after the Sabbath. It wasn't coincidence that God chose this appointed time that in the year Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, and that's Nisan 14, um, was a Thursday that year. So skipping down to verse 4 in Leviticus. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day, when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ipah, a fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of, one, uh, of wine one-fourth of hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all of your dwellings. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus told his disciples he was the bread of life. Even the characteristics that we saw on the Seder night of the matzah being striped and pierced because of the way that they cook it so that it's not risen. That's not planned. They didn't do it to make it look like Jesus' body. And yet here he says, I am the bread of life. And this matzah that represents that in, in our understanding is striped and pierced. What an unintended reflection as Jesus was beaten and pierced. And by his stripes we are healed. As we learned leaven represents sin, Jesus was without sin. Jesus said the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He broke the bread at Passover meal and told them, take, eat, this is my body. Eating only the unleavened bread for seven days as commanded by God, the children of Israel were reminded of their rejection of sin and acknowledging that it was God alone, God alone who saves them and rescues them. It is Jesus alone who saves us and rescues us. As we've been learning, we are seeing the purpose of God's feasts. We're to teach the children of Israel about a holy God how to worship him and how to approach him. That was the point of these feasts is to, is 
God is holy. There was a certain way in which a manner was prescribed to be able to come before him, to even be able to approach him in his holiness. There was a way that they had to do that. And he desired that relationship with him. He desired, so he, he made these ways for them to do it. But all the while, it was pointing to God the Son. All the while, these feasts were pointing forward to a future fulfillment. Pointing to God the Son, Jesus, Yeshua, the Christ, our Messiah, who would fulfill every single one of these feasts. Not only will he fulfill them in some symbolic way, but rather he becomes the physical fulfillment of these feasts. So most of the time when we hear first fruits, if we've heard lessons on this, maybe the first thing that might pop into our mind is a message on tithing. Am I right? The first fruits? We most likely have not heard too much more about first fruits except that we are to bring to the Lord our first and our best and to show him that we trust him and he will bless the rest of your harvest. That's the, the general application. Personally, I find that teaching and application just a, a little bit ironic because these are the same preachers who also will misunderstand and misappropriate the term we are not under the law and yet use the law of God for the tithe that not even the Jewish people can bring because there is no temple, there's no priest. <laughs> and so when you ask them, they might say something like, well, that still applies because we aren't an agricultural society, so their means of income, prosperity, or wealth was in what they grew. And yet the application of such in the New Testament falls greatly short in this explanation. Certainly I can see why it's taught this way, so I'm not taking anything away from that portion of the application. But is this a short-sighted view? Is there something more significant than bringing your biggest tithe into the church? Let us read in 1 Corinthians um, 15. Starting at verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that Christ, for that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to be present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So let me just summarize a few things here. First, Paul is saying, according to the scriptures. Well, what scriptures is he talking about? <laughs> we read that, and because we have the whole canonized Bible, we just assume we're talking about the Gospels or something like that. But they didn't have this. So what scriptures is Paul speaking of that he said that he was going to die and be buried and, and three days later be raised? He's speaking of the law of God, the prophets, the Psalms, the writings in, as the Old Testament, as we know it. Um, if you turn with me real quick in Luke chapter 24, just to prove my point here. Starting in verse 1. Now on that first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid, they bowed their faces to the earth and said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. 
Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tells, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself what had happened. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. So it was, while they were conversing and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and you have not known the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the, thir- the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived to the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that he had also, they had also seen a vision of angels and said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered in these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. So he was taking from the Moses, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and he was opening up their understanding. They couldn't even recognize him in whatever bodily form he was in until he opened their eyes and he allowed them to see, oh, it's Jesus. And now as he's walking with them, he's explaining to them, here in the law of God, here, as the prophets have said, here in the Psalms, I have fulfilled all these things. So Jesus and Paul are both referring to the law of Moses, the prophets and Psalms, in, him regarding, uh, in regard to him rising in three days. He told them plainly he would be killed and risen on the third day. That's both in Matthew and in Mark. He spoke those things to them. Um, real fast, just in Matthew, then I'll... Matthew seventeen twenty two. You don't need to turn there. He said, Now while they were staying in, Ga- staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Jesus knew he was fulfilling the law. He knew the prophecies. He knew that he would be the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread, and the first fruits. He understood these things. And he was explaining those things after he had risen. He opened up their eyes. He opened up their understanding to the scriptures. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. um, Starting at verse 12 now. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Let that sink in for a second. If there is no resurrection of the dead, there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no faith to have. 
our faith is futile. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Christ is not raised, we have nothing. No hope. We are still in our sins. We have only this life to be concerned with. Our faith is futile. You see, it's the whole spring feast picture that is needed. The Passover lamb, the burial, and the resurrection. Jesus' blood covered it all. But he had to be raised for the power for us to be also raised, for it to be finished. If he was not raised again, then we would be still in need of an annual cleansing. Let me go to verse 20. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. If you guys want to study this out, eschatological things, go ahead. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are in Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God and Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be defeated or destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son of himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The focus of first fruits is on the resurrection. That is the focus of first fruits. It is not, we can apply a message and understand that we should bring to the Lord our best to trust Him, but please let us not neglect the fact that our entire basis of our faith in Jesus wasn't just that He died, but that He rose. What was dead came to life. He wasn't merely revived as Lazarus was, as the other ones who uh, God, Jesus gave them back life through um, the apostles and, and they were brought back to life. We have those stories for ourselves. They were revived because guess what? They died again. Jesus was resurrected and did not die again. Jesus is the pattern son for us. The first of many, it says. He fulfilled on rising from the dead as he was waved before the Lord on the very day that the priests were waving the sheaves at first fruit offerings. Jesus was also to be waved before the Lord. Without a resurrection, we have no hope. Again, as the feasts were being played out in the natural sense, Jesus fulfilled them physically and spiritually. We also walk in this way because he made that way for us. Have you ever wondered why Jesus told Mary Magdalene not to touch him, but then instructed Thomas to touch him? So um, I've heard a wide variety of reasons for this. Some speculations, some are hyper-spiritualized, some are used against women. (laughs) 
Um, First, can you imagine the honor that Mary had being the first to see and hear the risen Lord and then given a command to go tell others? She got to be the first to speak the good news like that. What an honor. I just, I, sometimes I just get chills when I think about it. That was an honor bestowed upon Mary. So I don't think it's a woman thing that we're trying to get from this, this passage. But in John um, chapter 20, <clears throat> verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. She said, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that, that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now skip to verse 26 and 27. Um, Actually, let me just go up a little bit further. Now Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger in here, and look at my fingers, and reach your hand here, and put it in my, into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. When we understand that Jesus was filling the first fruits feast as the offering, we can also see the reason clearly. He tells Mary why. He says why. I have not ascended to my father yet. He tells her to go tell the brethren what he's doing. What is he doing? He's going to his father. Jesus was presenting himself to God the Father as the first fruits offering. But from reading in Leviticus, how were you to present a first fruits offering? It needed to be spotless, pure. It was mixed with, with the bread and the, and the wine. Without blemish. He couldn't be touched at that point. He couldn't have the humanity anymore because he was now the spotless. He had done the, the work at the cross. And if you notice... Well, maybe I'll get to that. So, he was the high priest. He was the lamb. He was the wine. He was the bread. Bringing the sheaf offering. Bringing of himself the first fruits. He was all parts of the spring feast to the very day, the very hour in which these things were physically taking place in the old covenant. The priests were waving before the first fruits offering. Jesus himself was presenting himself and, and before the Lord as the first fruits to be accepted. 
there's a song um, I've sung it a few times here. It's called I don't, I don't know the actual title, but in it, um, the chorus it says, "It is done. It is finished. Death is swallowed up in victory, and is signed and sealed by the blood that was shed at Calvary." I want to arm the people of God with understanding and power and courage in these days. I want to be a people like Moses that knows the ways of God, not simply just the actions or the deeds. Because Jesus made a way for us to escape the penalty of sin, which is death through, through his own death, his burial, and his resurrection, we can indeed walk in victory knowing our sins were paid, buried, and accounted for. Do we live the resurrected life? Do we know that there is no sin, great or small, that we can ourselves atone for? What further hope does this feast cry out to us? One, we already know, he conquered death. Meaning, as Paul said, if there's no resurrection, we would simply take the attitude of what he says later in in that same chapter. Let's eat, drink, and, and die then. If there's no resurrection, there's no point. There's no purpose in this life. None. But we know with confidence that this life here matters. It echoes in eternity. How we live our life in the, in the revelations that Jesus has given to us, in the gifts that he has given to us, we will take account for in eternity. We have been bought and paid for the very blood, with the very blood of Jesus. What then is the first fruits that we bring before the Lord? Jesus made it clear he didn't come to abolish the law of prophets but instead to fulfill them. In all of his teachings, he would always say that what the standard was, and then he would raise the standard. You've heard it it, said, remember how Jesus would say these things? But I say, we have a lot of those. Today I urge you to bring yourself before the Lord without holding back. Bring your entire life before him. The life that was bought and paid for by the very blood that he shed, and give that to God. Do we save the best and first for ourselves, or do we give it to him? Do we give to him the last portion of our time, of our talents, of our blessings? There is still a promise in the understanding of what bringing the first fruits was. When we bring our first, if we put God very first in all of those things, he does. He has a promise that he will increase And I'm not talking about prosperity message. I'm talking about increasing your faith. I'm talking about increasing your opportunities, your sphere of influence, increasing your giftings that he's given to you. And those are all for his glory. So what else can we take from this? I take that God's word is true. It was statistically impossible to fulfill the prophecies the way that he did. You can't. Have you guys ever read those things and you studied them out and I don't even know how many zeros were after if they did the statistical analysis of however, you know, and it keeps increasing with these zeros that could, you know, go on forever and ever and ever of each prophecy that he filled like that. That tells me that we still have those things that we are waiting for in his second coming. He is going to fulfill them in the same way, statistically impossible, supernaturally. This is miraculous. It's outside of the realm of natural. And it's because God said so. God said. That's it. As we continue to labor through learning his ways, we will continue to expose the plan of the enemy to keep us ignorant. 
That's what the plan of the enemy wants to do. He wants to keep us ignorant of God's ways. We might know that all these things happened. We might understand and, and, and believe and have that faith. All these things happen. But do you know why God wants us to know why? It's because there's a difference. When you just know that somebody does these things, in comparison to knowing why somebody does the things, there's a difference between knowing the deeds of somebody and knowing the ways of somebody. And God is calling for each of us to know him more intimately and to know his ways. In the scriptures, it talks about Moses. It says that Moses knew the ways of God and the children of Israel knew the deeds. Who was the one that drew close to God? Who was the one that went up to the mountain where the rest were afraid? It was because God, that Moses knew God's ways. The children of Israel, they just knew the hand of God, of what he did. Constantine wanted Christianity to be totally separate from Judaism. We've been studying these things out. And he did not want the resurrection to be celebrated on the Jewish Passover. So the Council of Nicaea accordingly required the Feast of Resurrection to be celebrated on a Sunday and never on the Jewish Passover, which if you remember now is the three feasts, not just the one piece, but the three spring feasts together. So in 325 AD, they named it Easter, mixing it with pagan festival fertility. And I would be remiss to simply just leave this truth out. I kept thinking, do I even say that? I don't want to, I'm not trying to mess with anybody's, plans for today because <laughs> this isn't a message this is not a message about easter traditions i simply want you to see what was replaced and how satan desires to bring in mixture if something god gives us is pure and if you just even put a little bit of poison would you still be okay in drinking that what god wants us is to not be ignorant of his ways so i'm not attacking anybody don't be upset don't be offended with me or anything like that. I simply want you to understand, as somebody that's bringing the word of God, I want to bring the full truth to you. This was an idea that was based off of hatred toward Jews and God's ways to bring in and mix with pagan festival. Why? I don't care if we know that they did that. Okay, but why? That's what we need to question. Why? So that we would not understand the ways of God that we would be removed from it. It erased it. How, how often do we hear in services, and we've all been in the Lord for a very long time, what first fruits truly has been and what it is. We see this. We can recognize it. It's something that we're studying out. But God is moving. He is pouring out his spirit of truth to teach us right now. This is a season of teaching, of getting back into, we, see, we can look with our eyes and see everything happening in the world around us. We see all, all the calamities, we see all the different pressures, we see all the, the things just keep going forward and like, is it gonna stop? Is this gonna stop these things? And yet God is saying, don't worry about that right now. Come, listen to me, I'm gonna teach you something, I'm gonna teach you my ways, I'm coming again. And before I come again, I'm going to pour out a revelation to you guys. I want you to see me. I want you to be prepared for my coming. I want you to be able to study out the feast because every single feast in the spring that he fulfilled is the exact same way, however he's going to do it, in the fall feast at his second coming. That's what those are there for. 
we can not, we don't have to stay totally confused all the time of like, I don't even want to look at the book of Revelation because it's too confusing. There's 50 different interpretations of it, da, 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 da. God's saying, no, look at it through my feast. You have a much better idea. Will, you, will we get it perfectly? No, but we're going to recognize it. We'll recognize those things. We have been given an opportunity to know God's ways. Not just that he did these things, but why. We see the heart of God in all of his plans. We see the loving Father who has a plan. This is something we should understand with seeing these things that are so impossible to be fulfilled. He had a plan. He had a plan, and it has not been happenstance. It's not coincidence. And right now, he has a plan in the chaos. He has a plan. Nothing, nothing is going to thwart his word. Nothing is going to thwart and and get him off track with his appointed time. It's not going to happen. But will we recognize the times that we're in? His second, um, he gave us this beautiful law to study. This isn't dry, dusty. It means something to us. Leviticus, Numbers, all these things, these mean things to us now. For 1,500 years, when they gave the law of Moses, the children of Israel, from the time then that Jesus, there was 1,500 years of the law. 1,500 years of, of, a, of a preparation, even if they didn't understand it fully, of this is my son, this is your redeemer. And then whenever he was able to speak to them on the side of the road and open up and say, remember that 1,500 years? That's what this has been. That's me. Now, it's been almost 2,000 years since the resurrection of Jesus and the start of the New Testament church. We're edging really close to that 2,000 years. He's still revealing himself. Still in the feasts to have, give us knowledge and understanding and to be like those brethren on the road when Jesus opened up their understanding to the scriptures. His spirit of truth does that for us today. If we will listen to him, if we will come to him, if we are willing, like we've been talking about, to let go of the traditions of man and come before him purely and saying, Lord, I want to understand your ways. Show me, open my eyes to the feast. Show me what's in in the law of God. And we know that because Jesus walked out of the grave, we will too. Amen. Amen. Amen.